Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. The particular section that we're going over here is uh, Numbers chapter 19, verse 1 through 25, verse 9, which covers the Torah portions of Chukat, um, which means statute of, and Balak, referring to the, the king there of Moab. And we picked up the parallel passages in Judges chapter 11 and John chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, and Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 6 through 6 verse 8 and Romans 11 verses 25 through 32. So one of the key aspects, you might think this is a giant grab bag of different topics. I mean, we've got this, this picture of the red heifer. We've got the picture of the snake on the pole and then the fiery serpents and the plague. And then we've got this whole episode with um, Balak and Bilam and then the, the talking donkey. And you see all these, these various accounts coming together and you wonder what on earth that they all have to do together and why are they all coming together at this particular juncture and one of those things to remember is this is a part of that downhill slide of the first generation that came out of Mitzrayim there during the exodus that first generation that was going to die off before the second generation reborn israel would cross over and enter the land of rest and you still see that there is with that first generation that there is still some uh, that there is still some blessing of conquering here that comes with the the two kings of um, Og and Sihon there on the east bank of the Arden the Jordan River that was going to be given to that first generation but um, that the next generation that was going to be uh, coming along was actually going to have the full victory in coming along and going into the land. So one of the, the things that you're, you're seeing here is this is covering a long, a long span of time because we had seen the wanderings that were happening uh, before, before they were getting to set out from the mountain. And then you're going to see a large span of time happen in the next several chapters as we come up and get ready to go enter the land. We're spanning over basically uh, 38 years, over four um, nearly four decades that were going to be happening in between. So there would be a huge change that would be coming along in in time with the people. So in these two particular passages, a very interesting thing that we might see in the first part of this uh, passage of Chukat, some of the, the hallmarks that come in with this particular passage, uh, we, we see that death may seem normal to us and because we see it all around us but really death 
in the realm of the creator of heaven and earth is an anomaly. Uh, it, um, we will see that the final, uh, the, the final opponent that is defeated in the world is death. And we see that death and the grave are finally thrown into the lake of fire as re- revealed there in the book of Revelation. That that, that that way of the order of life that we've all become accustomed to and we all groan from because it has taken so many of those who we care about and it has caused so much misery and and frankly, so much doubt in the world because of the degradation and the pain and the suffering that happens all around us all the time that has caused many, many to doubt, to say, well, is there really a God in heaven? Because all this death just keeps happening all around us. One of the lessons that we get in this particular passage is that that death really is something that is foreign foreign to the realm of god and it's a part of what the the detox process of being in the earth is all about but this this order that god created originally would be something that would be recreated and that this lesson that we get of contact with a corpse and the seven-day detox period and the cleansing on the third day and on the seventh day, that this would be important to emphasize that, that there has to be a solution to this constant contact with death and death that would just happen from natural causes, death that would happen in battle, that we saw described there are those that would be slain by the sword and for other things that would happen out to in the world to cause this death but if someone that were then wanting to come to the tabernacle to approach the presence of god they would need to be cleansed from this stain of death and um, that heaven is going to provide protection for us in taking us from the realm of death in this way of that we that leads to death and taking us toward the realm of life and we see also that heaven provides protection and provide protection for israel in traveling through a land that was full of scorpions and snakes until they were going to reach the land and we see also <laughs> that uh, a similar thing that is described in the in in the New Testament book of Acts with the Apostle Paul, and you know he was bitten by a snake that was coming out of the fire, and he was told, "Hey, you are going to reach your destination." So the strike of the snake in between was not going to lead to his death. So, some of the other lessons that we get from this particular passage, and in the particular passage of the red heifer sacrifice, is really a pattern of what heaven had planned with this healing mission of of the, um, the Messiah. And we see that, in particular, that... This was going to be something that the heavens 
Messiah, heaven's anointed one, was going to reverse this reign of death and then bringing in a reign that was going to be one that was surrounded and full of life. So in the particular section of Chukat, if we just look in this particular section, we see that it covers this water of cleansing that, which comes from the red heifer. Then we see also that the failure uh, it's interestingly you have the water that cleanses with the red heifer then you have the water of strife of what meribah means the water water of contention that happened there with the water in the rock so water that cleanses water that brings life and water that also brings life because they were uh, they were crying out because of thirst and yet that would bring uh, a a water of of contention because who was really in the the source of life for israel and then you see in this journey that was going to happen between their journeys from kadesh and going on to moab and they would be fighting these various kings and in the midst of this they would be having this encounter with contention against um against the leading of Moshe there with the with the snake. And if we see also in the section of um, Balak in the second Torah reading section, we see in some of the particular aspects of this journey that it the, pretty much this whole reading here is covering a the prophecies and is taken up with all of these prophecies that uh, this foreign prophet, this you could say uh, pseudo pagan prophet of uh, Bilam, was having and giving related to Israel. And as we are going through there, you probably recognize a couple of messianic prophecies that came through this pseudo pagan prophet and came to be a message for Israel. So, the question is, is that, well, what on earth is happening here with this? Uh, you, you see, you, you could say like three key aspects of this particular passage, and it's uh, reflected in the parallel readings that we were seeing. The red heifer, the um, snake on the pole, and also with Bilam. Now, let's take a look at these just one by one here of the aspect of the red heifer. One of the, the things to look at with the red heifer is it, it really is quite an unusual uh, sort of offering. Remember when we were going through the book of Vayikra or Leviticus that you talked about all the offerings and where were all these offerings done? They were done there and done at the altar and presented at the altar. Now, you see in particular, there are two of the, the key offerings related to the tabernacle that involve uh, things not happening at the altar. Because remember, it was a big deal when the tabernacle was created. Okay, you're off there giving these uh, offerings to God and and uh, wherever you were doing it before. But no, you were going to not having these um, 
either family or tribe offerings that you did in the past but no they would all be centralized and in one place with one altar there in the tent of meeting but in particular there would be two that would not be centered in the tent of meeting uh, well i could say one would be sort of centered in the tent of meeting but also involve things happening outside of the tent of meeting and in particular you could see that those would be the red heifer and also the offerings on Yom Kippur. And as we are showing here in this illustration of comparing these symbols of covering, the symbols of, of covering that they would be, uh, they have a number of similarities between them. And for example, with the red heifer, there were seven sprinklings of blood that would be, so you're from where the red heifer would be offered, then the blood was brought to the, um, the place of, it was brought to the tent of meeting. And then on Yom Kippur, you have the seven sprinklings of blood from the, uh, the goat that was for the Lord that would be sprinkled to um for the the uh the keperet or the mercy seat the covering over the ark of the testimony and that would be for the covering of sins transgressions and iniquities and the red heifer that was for the covering for contact with the dead and if you were to say what is the corollary between the sins transgressions and iniquities what is all that that is a progression away from life toward death that is a the way of death the way of the tree of knowledge of good and bad away from the tree of life so very interesting of these two particular symbols together and as we read in hebrews chapter 9 that these two particular offerings of Yom Kippur and of the sprinklings related to the heifer are about um, cleansing, but they were just like the the tabernacle as we read about it when we started or started reading about it in the end of Exodus. This was a pattern shown to Moses on the mountain of what heaven was going to be doing has been doing would would be doing would continue to be doing and ultimately would be doing with the the ultimate uh representation or the or the fullness of what was represented by the the tabernacle represented by the pattern the pattern would meet would meet the um the reality of what they represented and that would be in yeshua So, any uh, thoughts or questions here before we move on too much further? All right. So, one of the things to look at here going forward is over in Numbers 21. So, here we, we've seen in, in uh, the Numbers 19 about the red heifer. And in Numbers 21, here we have this encounter with the 
fiery serpents. Now, like when we were going through Genesis, and we've talked about this in years past, in Genesis, especially in Genesis chapter 3, there is this great Hebrew play on words here between uh, the, uh, the idea of cunning and the idea of the serpent. And you know, I talked about the serpent being more, more cunning and um, the idea of cunning and also revealed and also uh, of nakedness or being completely revealed. So, in one sense, the snake was completely revealed, but in another sense, not fully revealed on what the snake was, was getting at. Because the snake, as we'll see as we continue to unpack this further, the snake was unpacking something of what the choice was between the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and bad, but in a sense not fully unpacking what was involved with this, because keeping some of it concealed and uh, that... <laughs> that aspect of what was fully revealed and having no shame, which is what Adam and Chava or Adam and Eve, what they experienced before um, siding with the, the, the serpent's idea and going forward with the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And then after they have gone the way of the tree of knowledge of good and bad, and then there is something that they want to conceal, something that they want to hide. And thus, that there is some shame from having something to hide. And we, we, we see that within ourselves, is that when we have some things that we um, do not want to be revealed, if those things are revealed, we, do not, we don't feel great about those things. We, we have, there's all kinds of potential backlash, some consequences that can come if things are revealed, if they're, if they're innocuous, you know, some people can talk about you, if they're, if they're pretty egregious or pretty bad, then there could be uh, some legal action or uh, criminal action that may, may come as a result of these things. So the the things that we we have within ourselves the things that we have done our our thoughts that we have uh, do we want those all to be broadcasted um, there was a and recently a um, you could say a great satire that was put on it it was talking about the the internet era and the era of social media and they they illustrated it as if um, and it was it was meant to reflect upon the oversharing of uh, people on social media, but it was done on the aspect of like a a like a drama series. But everything that you ever said and everything that you ever did was then um, became a part of this serial drama, uh, basically trailing maybe um, about 15 minutes after you actually did it. And then that would be broadcast 
to all of your friends, all of your family, everybody you knew, all your neighbors, they would all see what was going on. And uh, the aspect of it was is that it would not be uh, a an accurate representation of it. It would be basically the assuming the worst intentions of whatever it is that you had said or did or whatever. And, you know, can you imagine if, if that were the case that everything that we would think the things we did in private would just then get broadcast everywhere and everyone would see those things, you know, are those things that we would want to conceal, <laughs> maybe even conceal our own eyes or are those things that we would say, Hey, we are, naked of a sense we uh, are have nothing to hide and we have no shame because of that so that is what the whole point of the covering over and removing that we have in in the yom kippur the day of atonement is that you have these sins which are you know the minor sort of things you maybe forgot you you weren't really careful about things you may have neglected maybe you didn't really fully know etc etc and you kind of veered off of where god's path was and then transgressions it gets a little more willful and then iniquities it's really you're going uh full bore off of the path and maybe headed in the other direction so to have these sorts of things about you to then be not only covered over but then removed away from the congregation that would be like having the same sort of movie about your life but you know you're you're thinking uh oh this the scene is coming up that i just did and i'm not really glad about it but then you look and it's not there it's been edited out and you're like wow what a relief that that part of me is no no longer remembered anymore so then you know think about that with heaven having the perfect view of everything that we do that those things that we would uh, not want to be broadcast everywhere that those things are now discharged and forgotten so which comes us uh, which brings us here to uh, numbers 21 with the incident of the snakes and here you have again and we've seen in uh, the previous passages that have been leading up to numbers 21 the complaints about the food you know that we've got nothing to eat we've got nothing to drink except for this miserable food <laughs> except for this daily bread um oh my goodness why why do we have to have daily bread um couldn't we just have something fantastic? Now, we've seen in our previous passages with the the issue related to wanting you know, quail to eat, wanting a different type of meat, and then that can become a plague that results from that. But we have this issue of the the snakes coming into the camp. And one of the interesting aspects of here, just like we have in in uh, in genesis chapter 3 with the the play on words between um between shame and nakedness and also uh the cunningness of the serpent here there's also a play of words in hebrew between the serpent and copper or 
bronze. It's it, it says bronze, but you know, copper, bronze. Uh, it, basically, it's the a similar idea with the the reddish metal. Now, with the bronze serpent, it was it was made from uh, nehoshet or uh, copper and copper as we talked about with the construction of the elements of the tabernacle the things that were out in the courtyard there was the idea that these would be plated over and you'd have a a covering of copper so the items and the elements out the the basin the altar that were out in the courtyard would be uh reddish and you said you have this idea the reddish metal items would be out there uh, as you would be coming in. And then you have the word in Hebrew for serpent or a nahash, and that uh, is thought to perhaps come from the verb form of nahash, which means uh, to hiss, and it's also used for incantations for casting a spell. Um, so the 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 sound of the serpent is the incantation of a cell of of a spell. Now, interesting enough, also you have uh, seraphim, where we get the idea or the the name for this class of the angelic host or the the serpents. Um, that seraph means to be set on fire. So the uh, that's where you get in these translations of the fiery serpents. Now, people go back and forth. Are you talking about uh, seraphim as in the uh, angelic host, or are you talking about uh, fiery as in the venom that they have in there? Because that idea of uh, seraph in in the context of venom is also used in the Bible. So... Um, and then that also comes in with one of the other aspects of this is that in this particular passage, when it talks about the Lord sent these serpents into the camp, uh, in a sense that Yeshelach, uh verb form could also be translated as to let go or to release, uh, to you know, cause to be sent or to to let go. So thus, you could have the idea that the sending of these snakes was basically removing the protection of Israel from what was out there in the desert around them. <laughs> but uh, since you had this specific plague, um, it, was, it could possibly be a combination of the two, of, of sending them and also re- removing the protection from them because you had all these snakes uh, coming in at once. So, thus, what you have is this image of the serpent that was on the pole. And as in the passage that we read in John chapter 3, which is in that, um, we always remember the in that passage from John chapter 3, um, starting in verse 10, that included in there is the, the, the famous passage from John 3.16 about that whoever believes, whoever trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And in that passage that we read, it says uh, just like the serpent on the pole was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
And that phrase uh, lifted up is a, a euphemism that we see elsewhere in the Gospels for lifted up on the uh, stake of execution to, for crucifixion. So, what we, what we see here is that uh, this picture of this symbol, that here you have a source of death, the snake, the snake which is biting you. That then is put on a pole that a, a standard, or as they, um, you'll, you'll see some ancient commentators will say that the, the bronze serpent was put up on a miracle because the Hebrew word ness is also means miracle. But strictly speaking, it just means a sign or a standard. Uh, in, in old-timey English, it's called an ensign, uh, something uh, to, to catch your attention to be a signaling um, item. And that indeed is what you see also coming over into the Greek of the Gospels, um, described as um, miracles that Yeshua did, and especially in the Gospel of John, because, you know, Yochanan writes about, oh, this is the, the sign that he did at uh, Cana with the uh, transforming water into wine. This was a miracle. This was a nest that he did to catch your attention, to say, hey, pay attention to what's going on here and uh, see what is really going on. Well, for those people at that particular time period, it was you turn your eyes away from your agony and you put your eyes on the serpent on the pole, this bronze serpent, this red serpent on the pole, that in that lifting up of this standard would bring life by your faith it wasn't because of the pagan serpent gods that were around there the leviathan etc there was not that idea that this serpent god would be one that would bring you life but who was the one that was providing life for the people in the desert what was their source of life so we see that uh, forget uh, that issue of forgetting where your roots come from it happened about six, seven hundred years later after this incident with the snakes and the exodus that down to the time of uh, Hezekiah that he come, came in after a, a particularly egregious father that he had and he came in and did a major reform to get rid of the Asherah poles and any of these um, symbols that were set up to the fertility goddess. And it specifically mentions there in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, that he broke into pieces the bronze serpent uh, that Moshe had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called uh, the Nehush. Nehushtan, or which is that Nahash um, picture again. Basically, it could be either the snake thing or the copper thing. It could be translated either way. But just like uh, as we've seen with the crossing of the Red Sea, that the in the Canaanite pantheon 
there was the great battles that were being done between the Baals and the chief Baal, the chief lord, and Yam, or the, the sea god, and they had a pitched battle between them. And then, then you had uh, a final um, truce victory of a sort between Baal and Yam to win the victory. Rather than that, you see that the God of Israel just said to the sea, open, and it, it just obeyed. There was no battle, there was no negotiations, there was no politicking that went on between the God of Israel and Yom, or the sea. It just obeyed, and the sea opened up, and, and it also closed up and cut off the pursuing army. And... When then Israel finally got up to the land, <laughs> the people heard about what happened uh, four decades earlier, uh, that the Yom was defenseless, that the Baals of the land were not what was in control of Yom. It was the God of Israel just said, hey, open up, and the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them just said to the sea, open up. And it opened up. So, this is a, a good lesson that we should not uh, set our eyes upon the, the trappings or the symbols of what it is that heaven is doing but rather on the reality of what they are. Because, you know, we, we can see either uh, putting our faith in, in the, the, the structures of religion, to put the, the faith in the, the rigors of this, of the, of the liturgy, of this or that. And those in themselves can become our source of trust, rather than trusting the one who all of these things point to the serpent on the pole what did that utterly point to it to point to the the word of god that was up on the pole that became the cursed of heaven so that all of us would not be cursed and that the curse of all humanity would be placed upon the messiah so that is one of the the great lessons that we have here in this particular part of this lesson is trust. Who do you actually put your trust in? So this is one of these signposts, these symbols, the standard that's set up here. You're going through the wilderness. Who do you put your trust in? Which then brings us to the great <laughs> encounter with the talking donkey. Now, we can... Oh, yes. Uh, Victor, someone has a question there. Uh, yeah, it's Alex. Uh, Jeff, uh, just more of an observation. So it seemed like Balak and Balaam, it's an incredible uh, story. Um, Balaam was a prophet. He wasn't a Hebrew, and he would hear what God had to say. There was no dialogue. I think Balak was kind of jumping ahead when he said, well, I'm going to show you this stuff, and then you can get word back to God. So it wasn't there. Moses could do that, and thank you, Yeshua, we can do that. But that was different then. They, was, they, were, they were outsiders. <laughs> 
Well, it, and it's very it's a very interesting observation you have there, Alex, because um, one of the one of the uh, kind of key aspects that we have to remember about uh, Bilam is that he was a well-known historical figure of this of this particular time period and this particular era. They have actually dug up some in, in, inscriptions here, which, you know, depending on the, the dating period, um, this particular inscription from Deir Allah uh, is dated roughly 800 to 700 BC, which would be, um, that time period would be after the time of uh, David, Solomon, etc. Um, but the... Some of the, uh, they've also found a temple, uh, or I could say a temple, shrine, etc., with a mural um, of the same uh, inscriptions or sayings related to uh, Bilam, the son of Beor, in that particular area, the, the east um, bank of the Jordan. And in particular, one of the inscriptions that's talked about, the, the Deir Allah inscription, um, it talks about you know, that uh, the book of um, Bilam, the son of Beor, a divine seer, and uh, it talks about how he was fasting for a couple of days, and then he, uh, his um, attendants were asking, well, why are you fasting? Why do you weep? And a very interesting passage here, it says, Then he said to them, Be seated, and I will relate to you what the Shaddai gods have planned, and go and see the acts of the god. Now, it's one of those things to remember that um, in uh, some of the Semitic cultures, there were uh, a number of deities that were called um, uh, Shaddai. So when you see El Shaddai, that is... Um, <laughs> that is a an emphasis on that which is uh more when you're talking about like the king of kings this would be the the shaddai now shaddai is that hebrew term or semitic word is translated different ways depending on the semitic languages of the area one of which is destroyer um the the one who <laughs> makes things uh, another way it's translated is um to make things an open plane which means to basically obliterate everything to make it a parking lot so to speak so that picture of um that's why it's often translated as um god almighty uh el shaddai translated as god almighty because this power to ultimately wipe out and take out everything in a particular area so thus you you see some commentators will associate this el shaddai or the the one who is uh in the in responsible or known for destroying be that which brought the deluge and um the the god of the deluge be being the god of the god of noah the god of avraham and passed on down that way. So, this Bilam, son of Peor, was in touch with, as we even see in the account that we read here today, in touch with other uh, deities, so-called deities, so-called powers. 
of the time period, and he was going off to summon and get words from them. So, if if you can imagine um, that the the Lord trying to work with a with a mouthpiece like that that is open to all kinds of voices uh, that are coming from all kinds of sources and uh, tapping into all kinds of uh, sources of knowledge. So the Lord is getting through to him in a has to kind of you could say uh turn up the volume on his message that he's giving to Bilam in this case to get through to him on this message but the interesting thing about Bilam and his particular name and there's all kinds of ideas on how his name could possibly be translated one of which is um the Bela and Am, so taking them as two separate words, and one of is a destroyer of the people, uh, or lord of the people. Uh, there's a number of ways that people have come up with um, ways to translate his name, and that's thought then as to why his name shows up in um, Revelation chapter 2 is because uh and why that's connected why the the rebellion of uh, Bilam of Balaam is showing up in Revelation chapter 2 in connection with this the uh it's called the the Nicolaitans because uh, uh Nicolaus is uh, some have suggested that that is a could be translated as conqueror of the people so it could be a similar idea of uh uh, Nicolos or uh, Bilam being, you know, Hebrew and Greek versions of the same kind of title of what is actually happening, and you see that they have a similar kind of corrupting influence on on uh, the congregations that are discussed there in, in Revelation chapter two. So that is when you're uh, when Alex was was talking about <laughs> this. Uh, vessel that the lord is working with with bilam it is it is incredibly interesting that such an important message is communicated through this particular tool we we saw earlier and there's debate about who melchizedek is and uh what the lineage of that was but it was at the very least, it was a priest of the Most High who was separate from the family of um, of Avraham. Now, sometimes people might say it was it was uh, Shem or somebody else. Uh, some even say you know a, a pre-incarnate Messiah. Those are possibilities and you could see some reasons for those especially when you bring in some of the testimony of the letter to the hebrews in that regard but at the very least you're saying this is a voice that is separate from the people of god that is also bringing forward the words of god so that is an important voice and we we've heard um we've heard of some people who bring testimony of coming out of of islam and hearing the lord speaking through in the the noise that they have heard in in their particular culture that that noise came through even 
when all these other voices were were there that they had the word of truth that came through in this and was able to speak through truth on this so in this particular context of where Bilam is speaking one uh, curious thing that comes up is when you look at these messages if you were to just step back with this picture of the the donkey and the talking donkey well a, a question that comes up and a number of people over the centuries have noticed this is that where else do you hear about a talking animal and you would naturally say well uh yes <laughs> genesis chapter 3 where you have a talking snake so talking snake in genesis 3 and here in uh, Genesis uh, Numbers 22, then you have the talking donkey. So is, is that just a, a coincidence that you have these, um, as they're represented as talking animals, is that something that's just a coincidence? Or is there something else that is perhaps um, a deeper message of what is being communicated so uh, some people have have noticed these particular um parallels between the two accounts and eden there in genesis 3 and with bilam in numbers 22 you know you have a talking snake in in eden you have a talking donkey with bilam now something very interesting is that you have that the the snake is sowing distrust there with uh, Chava in the garden. With in passages in Genesis chapter 3, like, you know, did God really say? Or another way that could be translated is, even if God did say, um, and then as it goes on, and then another passage there where, you know, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this sowing distrust, well, is God trying to keep something from you? Um, keep something from you that would be good out of jealousy, um, etc. Versus in the account with Bilam, the, the donkey is rather when the mouth of the donkey is opened uh, she emphasizes trust you know what have i done to you am i not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day so basically faithfulness is being emphasized by the donkey that this donkey is emphasizing faithfulness now another parallel is with the angels so you have these heavenly beings showing up um, there in the garden you've got the two chavarim or the covering angels with the flaming swords are now stationed outside of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life and um, that way to the tree of life would be rather um, revealed later on would be revealed with the tabernacle and that you would be approaching toward the tree of life and the words of god there in the tablets of the testimony and then the presence of the lord would be there hovering seated above the 
the Keparet or the, the mercy seat, which is above the tablets of the testimony. In a similar way there in Numbers 22 with Bilam, that this uh, Melechayah or the angel of the Lord that had a sword drawn to guard the way and uh, the way that Bilam had intended to go, which was just basically to continue on with his mission. He had been called to come and would he just continue to go on? And the angel is there to say, if you had tried to go on in the way that you were going to go, you would have been killed. But the donkey saw the angel, it was revealed to the donkey to stop, and so she tried to avoid the angel. And when the, she could not avoid the angel any longer, she just knelt down. But it's a very interesting thing that uh, Bilam had to be stopped until he got Heaven's commission, and then he was allowed to continue on. But he had to get this commission of what he was going to speak first, and then he would go on and give increasingly uh, significant prophecies as he would continue on. Now, some other very interesting things, now just continuing this on further to look at some of these similarities back to the garden, is that the, in the garden, the snake was the adversary of humanity. Now, what is another name for adversary? Uh, Satan. And it's very interesting also is that uh, that is what the angel of the Lord is called in this particular passage, a Satan. That's the word that's used in this passage, a, an adversary against Bilam in his um, trying to continue on and go down the way. Now, in, the, in this particular uh, passage with Bilam, the donkey is, rather than trying to be an adversary of humanity, is really bearing the burden of the nations. And this is where it gets to be kind of interesting, is because then you see with the snake in the garden, like in Genesis 3.15, you've got that great messianic prophecy where the snake embodying the adversary of heaven's anointed where it says you know he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel so these um responding attacks back and forth and that you would have the adversary try to go after the messiah and even all of Jacob, the heel um all of israel itself and you see that also pictured in the book of Revelation, where you see the dragon tries to go after go after the woman um, before she gives birth, and then even after she gives birth to the, to the Messiah. And you see that the, the great donkey prophecy, uh, where you have the, it's foretold, and uh, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that, behold, your king is coming to you, and it, it goes on to say that he's humble and mounted on a donkey. And we see that that was fulfilled when Yeshua, with his, tri it's called the triumphal entry, there on that great lamb selection day, um, before uh, that great Passover of his death, and then the great first fruits of his resurrection, uh, recorded there in Matthew uh, 21.5 and John 12.15. 
so it is it is an interesting picture that when you look back in this that um to a prophet a call him a pseudo pagan prophet because uh he was sort of pagan but not totally pagan because one of the voices in his uh, realm of um divination was the voice of the lord but it was it was among a host of other voices and as we look at uh bill Alms, um his legacy as it moved forward <laughs> that uh some of those other voices ended up winning out in his case that he yes he was a vehicle and he served the lord's purpose for bringing some very important messages to the nations to the people of the land of what was coming and uh what the lord was going to do through israel but in a in a sense yeah it was delivered in spite of the messenger and uh the messenger uh, himself uh, succumbed and became a watchword against um um pernicious or influences that will weed in and go for your weakest point so it's a very interesting picture of the the donkey of the burden bearer that the the donkey would be a a symbol a symbol to the nations of moab and the nations there of the of the land that you are trying to attack israel but should you not see that israel has been the one that has been really bearing the burdens of the world bearing bearing the burdens of the world and would indeed um be the one that would bear the burden of the savior of the world and the anointed one that would be dealing with the with the the great uh departure that humanity had from god's family there in the garden any uh further thoughts before we move on further okay so thus when you see that when you get to the last passage that we have the idolatry of uh, Baor, this is happening in the same place <laughs> this is happening uh in a location where you have uh you oh i i see there's a hand up there it's kind of ironic that the donkey is the smartest thing in the whole story isn't yeah. it the donkey is and, the smartest yeah. one the bilam is an idiot the king is an idiot they're all idiots the donkey is the smartest one yeah and you know you 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 see in in this in this uh the um picture as to where you have donkeys uh, show up it's a very curious thing remember when we were uh when we were looking at the exodus that you were to redeem the firstborn and if you do not redeem what of a donkey you're supposed to break its neck if you don't redeem uh, it just seems to be a very curious um little quirk when you're talking about the 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 firstborn of why it is that the the donkey the burden bearer is one that you you also need to redeem and being a picture for the nations that um 
the one who you are spurning, uh, even spurning of your own family, is one that is really going to be the uh, one that is going to bear the burdens of all of you um, in ages to come. May not look at look like it at the time, but it would be. Uh, you you might have seen the the shades of the blessing that came to Abraham. You know what was the blessing that uh, the Lord gave to Abraham? You know all that will bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And then you see the same things come through Bilam when he is uh, having the blessings upon Israel about blessings to be blessed and cursings to be cursed. That they would indeed be a vessel uh, for all of the world to be to be blessed. Now the question is, is that do you take up this blessing? And we, as we read in the passage in Micah, um, that is talking to... <laughs> Uh, further on in Israel's history where the, the nation has, has come apart at the seams and is dealing with exile. So, exiles, plural. So, that is a point where you have to come back from the brink. And how do you come back from the brink? To remember where you started. To remember your basic principles of the Torah, which is why that Micah passage ends with, you know, yeah, a a um, partial, I, I could say, another retelling of the the greatest commandments about um, what does the Lord require of you to pursue justice, to love mercy or love kindness, and to walk humbly before God, and that encompassing the aspects of what the the Torah is really getting at. So, in all of your learning, do you learn that? In all of your learning of the Torah, are you learning those three important aspects of it? Because if it is just ending up being a bunch of details, and uh, are you then missing the, the bigger aspects, or as the Yeshua put it, the weightier matters of the law? and um, focusing on some of the minutiae. So, when we, when we look at this, this warning of Bilam is really a warning for us in the, the latter days as we look forward and say, okay, well, this is great. This happened, um, I guess, going on uh, 20, 30 probably about 3,500 years ago, 3,300 to 3,500 years ago, what difference does it make here today? Well, as we've seen, this is, these are aspects that can be, we can fall victim at any particular time period. Are we listening to the voice of God, or is it a voice among many other voices that we are just kind of having a grab bag uh, buffet of influences upon us. Are we like Bilam, where we just hear a cacophony of voices of input and many of them may have equal weight? Or is it that we finally realize, hey, the 
creator of heaven and earth is the one who I really should turn my attention to. But as you see from Bilam's history is that he then did not uh, did not follow along that path. And you see in his later history elsewhere where Bilam is talked about in the Bible, uh, we see later on that uh, as we see at the ending part of Numbers, Numbers 31, you see that uh, Midian is later destroyed. Uh, so that incident that we see here at the end of this particular Torah passage where you have the uh, the daughters of Midian are come in and are uh, seducing the um, the sons of Israel and leading them off the path. That this is something that would later lead to not only the destruction of Midian, but also the destruction of Bilam, as recorded there in Joshua chapter uh, thirteen, verse twenty-two, and. Then you see later on in uh, the small little book of Jude that in verse 11, there are three aspects that are mentioned as being significant uh, wayward points for the people of God, one of which is the way of Cain, secondly, the error of Bilam, and thirdly, the rebellion of Korach. Well, we just read about Korach last week, and that picture of being close to the presence of God, being involved with the things of God, but wanting more, wanting to say, well, I, w the, the task that I've been given is not good enough. I want to have more. I want to be the leader, the one in charge. Uh, Pamela, you have your hand up. It's about yes. the breaking the neck of the donkey. I don't get it. About what about the donkey? The firstborn and of the donkey, you break its neck. Why? Well, basically, yeah, you're 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 saying that um, that the firstborn, you're you're not going to get past redeeming the donkey. You must redeem the donkey, otherwise, you have to kill it. Um, that you're saying that you must redeem the the donkey. It's it's not something that is optional that you can just bypassing and keep on using your donkey. No, it is essential if you want the donkey, and the donkeys are very important in uh, the ancient time periods as a method of uh, hauling and doing work and transportation, etc., that you must redeem the firstborn of the donkey. Its burden, if you want it to bear your burden, you must redeem it. Otherwise, you're not going to get the burden bearer. It, you must then kill the donkey. So, yeah, is that, is that, so, the reason why you have to break the neck of the donkey if you don't redeem it is you can't use it otherwise. You know, if you if you have Israel here and they have their uh, their um, herd of of donkeys, and you know you have the firstborn of the donkey, and you're thinking, well, you know, I could just bypass that. Uh, you've got all these other animals that the livestock, and you can you know redeem those. Uh, but 
if I want to uh, use the, the donkey, man, maybe I can just bypass that. But the instruction here is saying that the redemption of the, the firstborn of the donkey is so important that the burden bearer is so important that you cannot bypass that redemption of it. So, what is the burden bearer of the world in one sense? Uh, one symbol of that is in the donkey. And so thus, uh, that is why that lesson is, uh, yeah, and uh, Kerry points out part of what's going on there is a prophetic picture of the Messiah riding the, in on the donkey. And what is the Messiah riding in on? Riding in on Israel and the whole legacy of Israel. So that picture of the donkey as being the burden bearer is it must be redeemed there is a number of pictures of the firstborn and redemption but it is the redemption at the expense of something else so for example what was the whole point of the redemption of the firstborn to begin with was because of the firstborn of egypt that had to suffer for the firstborn of israel to um be redeemed so you're saying that the redemption of the burden bearer for ultimately the messiah had to be redeemed by something else and indeed someone else so even though the donkey would bear the messiah into jerusalem indeed the messiah in a sense bore the donkey before the donkey could bear the Messiah into the city. That's, that's where you, you, you get these, these pictures of things happening way in advance of when they actually happen. So, it is, it is uh, just a, a picture here of the lesson of the donkey to, to Bilam is, hey, um, you are attacking a burden bearer of the world. And uh, then the Lord is saying, hey, look, this is uh, a message for the whole world here that these people are to be blessed, not cursed. They are not a curse. They are actually a blessing. Now, the problem, though, comes in is that what happens when Israel comes into the land because of the behavior of the people in the land what ends up having to happen um, was was that a blessing was the was the conquering of the land a punishment for the people who were in the land well you could definitely say that 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 was a if if you're the one on the receiving end, you would definitely think that that was that that was a punishment for it. But one of the the things that we can we can always hope for in the outpouring of uh, the history of the people of God and and God into the world is that uh, more people will get the message and that in the messianic era a lot of the things that were concealed either 
out of unrighteousness by the people in charge of those peoples or uh, because of, uh, frankly, people like Bilam that were also serving other deities. He had so many voices going on out there. We just, um, we'll just put it into the hands of the creator in heaven and earth that he will do justly for all these people that had been led astray by all of the forces around them. So that is one of our, our great prayers in the world is that not only that the, that the falsehoods be struck down and that these, these um, lying forces to be confounded and the weapons that are pointed against the people of God to be um, made not to prosper, to be frustrated, destroyed, etc. But also that, uh, that the Lord would have mercy on all of the nations that have just been led astray by all kinds of forces and powers and such that have taken them down the, the wrong roads. So that is one of the things that that we should end it with here, and um, a passage of that. Let's see. Uh, yeah. So that's the place where we'll end it here today. Any last thoughts as we uh, close things out here today? Yeah. So I hope that when we go from this, that we can get the the picture that that heaven is is working extremely hard to bring those who are on the outside you know we you know, the, this illustration here of uh, an artist rendering of the the offering of the red heifer outside of the gates of Jerusalem and that them would be you know carried the ashes then into for the uh, cleansing and the the water purification would be would be carried in to the city but that those who are on the outside will be brought in and that we um, will our eyes will be opened uh, just like Bilam's eyes were open to see w the way that the word that the Lord is actually working with us and that we won't be fighting against heaven uh, the way that Bilam was fighting against heaven because we've got too many other voices competing for our, our attention. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L -L dot I-N-F-O. Halal.info.